Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. In each episode, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is Eric Fridman. Eric works in law and has previously held the role of President and Vice President of the Jewish Law Student Association at Osgood Hall Law School in York University, where he studied in Toronto in Canada. As part of his role there, Eric dealt with issues of anti-Semitism on campus and did a joint statement with the Muslim Law Student Association at the university to build bridges when the Israel-Palestine conflict last ignited in 2021. As part of this work, Eric also led two trips to Israel for Jewish and non-Jewish students alike for a cultural programme called ITREK, which introduces tomorrow's leaders in business, law, policy and STEM to Israel, helping them experience Israel firsthand through peer-led week-long trips. With over 22,000 graduate student participants across 103 nationalities since its launch in 2012, ITREK brings the richness and complexity of Israel to life through trips that combine education, culture and fun. Eric has also run as a parliamentary candidate for the Canadian Green Party in federal elections, which he did a few years ago. After I interviewed British-Palestinian journalist Hamza Ali Shah about the Israel-Palestine conflict from the Palestinian side, I was keen to cover the conflict from the Israeli or Jewish side, especially after the horrific events of October 7th, 2023, where Hamas invaded Israel by car, foot and even hang glider, murdered 1,200 Israeli citizens and kidnapped an estimated 240 people, including the elderly and young children. Thankfully, during a six-day ceasefire at the end of November 2023, 105 hostages were released. However, tragically, of the 135 hostages still unaccounted for, Israel says that 19 are believed to be dead at the time of recording. In this episode, we discuss the events of October 7th, the truth of what happened, the rise in anti-Semitism that has exploded since the conflict reignited across the world, and the impact that has had on Jewish people in those communities. We also talk about his role as president of the Jewish Law Student Association, ITREK, and how we build bridges across what has now become one of, if not the, most controversial and divisive political issue in the world right now. We explore how we've come to a place where concepts like empathy and compassion have now become politicised through the lens of this debate, and what the future holds for Israelis and Palestinians where the ruling parties of either side are either extreme, hostile or both, and openly hate their opponents and do not want peace or a two-state solution depending on the parties involved and the individuals you look at. For Eric's mental health, we discuss why he is culturally Jewish but not practising, and how he came to that conclusion the personal mental health impact of the anti-Semitism he's faced in life, and the importance of finding your purpose and path forward. At time of recording, approximately 21,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since October the 7th from Israeli airstrikes and their subsequent ground invasion in Gaza. 
and this is not a podcast that views one side's pain and suffering as better or more important over the other. Both sides have had atrocities committed against them, and all loss of human life is tragic, horrific, and should be preventable at all costs. This podcast, like Hamza's, is designed to amplify the voices and perspective of each side, build bridges, and show you the listener that this conflict, like many issues I cover on the podcast, is not binary and infinitely more nuanced and complex than the purely black and white image the mainstream conversation can sometimes portray. So this is how my conversation with Eric Fridman went. Eric, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you very much for letting me check in with you after I was connected with you through Alana Sidorsky from the iTrek program and also a very good friend of the pod, Lena Clough. I was very keen to have you on. And here we are on a, Jesus, is it Thursday or Wednesday? I'm losing track of time. It's a Thursday. It's a Thursday. It's definitely Thursday. How are you, mate? Pretty good. How are you doing? I am good, mate. I'm good. As listeners can tell, we are recording this in between Christmas and New Year, a period where I completely lose track of what day it is. We've got an absolute ton to talk about and a very nuanced conversation, which I'm really excited to dive into. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Yeah, let's do it. We're going to start your pod, mate, by talking about your professional journey, as it's encompassed a fair few different things since you embarked on it. So tell me first about your role as vice president and then president of the Jewish Law Student Association at your alma mater of York University in Toronto, Canada, why you wanted to take up the role and your experience here. Yeah, when I went to law school, it was probably the first time I really experienced anti-Semitism. You know, I had experienced it in other forums. And of course, you know, you read about it, but it wasn't something that I had directly faced. And in my first semester, I faced some anti-Semitism that ended up resulting in me losing a great deal of my friends because somebody had told a story about how his grandfather used to kill rats and he would take a bucket of water and a plank and some cheese at the end of the plank And the rats would go to get the cheese and they would drown in the water. And as bad as that was, it was a solution to a problem. And this was the student's explanation of the Holocaust to me. Holy shit. (laughs) I didn't know where that was going, but Jesus Christ. Oh my God. Wow. Okay. Sorry. Carry on. And I I was a bit shocked. So I told a few friends about what I had heard. And and when I spoke again with this person, they told me that they felt they had said nothing wrong. And, you know, I forgave them because I felt there was no need to make more of it than necessary. But about two or three weeks later, I noticed a lot of my friends kind of giving me the cold shoulder. And when I went up to one and asked, uh, so, you know, uh, what's going on? My close friend at the time said, well, everyone thinks you're a real crybaby about this Jewish stuff. (laughs) So what was shocking to me about it wasn't the comment. I mean, the comment, okay, fine, you know, people say stupid things. I think what shocked me more was that somebody had said that comment, that I had reasonably gotten offended by it. I had mm-hmm. addressed that with the person and forgiven them. But even then, now I was being ostracized for this. And, you know, it kind of motivated me to give back to the Jewish community because I had been part of this Jewish Lost Association as a member. It wasn't a very big organization. They didn't do a whole lot. It was like three sushi lunches with Rabbi Keller. And I went in as vice president with a friend of mine, and we really built up the organization, got a lot of new people involved, and we did a Holocaust Remembrance Day events, and we did social events, and we did academic stuff where we helped people with mentorship as well as like getting ready for exams. And, you know, my second year, that was 
probably the most significant, which is when I became the president. And in the summer of 2021 was when there was the last conflict uh, between Gaza and Israel. You said that when this crisis reached breaking point, which culminated in Hamas firing rockets from the Gaza Strip into Israel, and that was then followed by Israel launching an airstrike bombardment, which destroyed approximately 94 buildings in Gaza, you were seeing people making anti-Semitic claims that, quote, Jews control the media, a very common anti-Semitic trope, which has followed Jewish people for centuries. What responsibility did you feel in protecting your law student peers as president as well as the awareness that, as you've told me, Toronto has a very strong Jewish population, symbolised by, I think, one of its favourite, or certainly its biggest sons, Drake, being of Jewish heritage too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Drake went to the high school I went to. Which was- oh, is it? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it was a public school, but but it was a very Jewish area. And yeah, Drake's great. <laughs> He'll hang out in Scarborough in Toronto at like the local hookah place. Um, of course he does (laughs) or or fancy just like you know where the local people would chill but to your question about gaza and israel and you know the anti-semitism that came with that conflict in 2021 yeah so a lot of law students you know there were posts like jews control the media or things of that nature and there was a lot of stuff going on online a lot of jewish students feeling unsafe at some point one of the more jewish neighborhoods of the city had to go on lockdown because there was vigilante mobs there was a lot of the things you're seeing now but of course you know at the time it wasn't even as bad as it is now because this was just sort of a continuation and for people who just really kind of tuned in this time you know this is something that's been going on every few years between Gaza and Israel because Gaza and Israel continuously have ceasefires and then Hamas breaks the ceasefire. And this is what happened in 2021. So Hamas broke the ceasefire, shot a bunch of rockets at Israel, killed people, and then Israel bombed Hamas targets in Gaza. So the immediate response that the Jewish Law Association membership, at least some of the membership wanted, was to create our own statement on the conflict because the Muslim Law Association on our campus had already had done so, you know, with language like apartheid state and other things that, you know, Jewish students didn't agree with. But I felt strongly, you know, at the time that for us to make a statement immediately in that environment would have created like a lot of pressure onto Jewish students because mm. while York University is in Toronto, Osgoode Hall Law School is very competitive and it doesn't necessarily draw its student body from Toronto. In fact, a lot of the student body come from all across Canada. So the level of understanding of Jewish people is much less so than you would think. So on the campus environment, you know, I would often hear people ask me what I thought about Israel the second they found out I was Jewish and a lot of Jewish students would get that. Is that problematic in itself? I don't hear a lot of Muslim students who get asked the same kind of question. Or is it because, you know, there is just one home of Jews, which is Israel? Do you know what I mean? Like, I can see both sides, but that sounds a little bit problematic. There's a different connection there, right? Because, yes, because there is only one Jewish state and there are many Muslim states. I think, you know, it stems from curiosity. I mean, they're interested. I think it also, though, unfortunately stems from, you know, an idea in our culture that, you know, people have certain political views. It's more appropriate to be more disliking of those people or discriminatory against those people because... We generally agree that if somebody holds political views, that these are things that they've done by choice. And so this kind of creates a problematic intersection for Jewish students because 
Jews, while on the one hand, yes, okay, fine, they have a choice, they can decide how they feel about that country. For most Jews, it's very difficult being so intimate with the issue and it having such a direct effect that to just outright denounce the state of Israel. Most Jewish people, no matter what their political backgrounds and other, other issues are, tend to have some sort of nuanced view of the state of Israel and its actions mm. and what it does, the same way that people do of the Canadian government and the same way that people do about the American government and the UK government. And it's usually that people are critical of a country on a spectrum, not just you know the extremes of it can do no wrong or it's the evilest state in the world. So it's something that I'm very cognizant now that I've gone through law school about people's views of Israel and, and that sort of litmus test that's given when you're asked that question with really, for most people, no right answer. So I was very concerned as the president of the Jewish Law Association about that because also, you know, I didn't feel the administration for my work from with them previous to this incident really instilled a whole lot of confidence that they were going to step in to protect Jewish students. And that's kind of being played out now you see in the United States with the congressional hearings where university presidents of the Ivy League of the U.S. won't say that genocide against Jews is something that they're concerned about, unless it's actionable, of course, unless they start killing Jews. So I went for a different approach. And what I did instead was I actually reached out to the Muslim Law Association. And I worked with them on finding a joint statement that both of our organizations could agree upon. And it wasn't an easy task to do, of course, because we're coming at it from different perspectives. But we actually, after nine revisions, came up with a statement and we got the administration to sign on to the statement and published it in the Law Times. And, you know, it was something that I'm really proud of. And even today, people, you know, with what's going on today at law firms, they talk about that joint statement. And now the University of Ottawa has done a similar thing in this conflict, the Jewish Law Association and the Muslim Law Association. And, you know, immediately following that, you know, tensions really cooled on campus. And then we felt comfortable making our own statements on the Israel conflict because we were now operating in an environment where people were kind of ready to come after us. Because the extra responsibility that you hold, I think, as a representative of any group of people is in that situation, if we had immediately just come out with a statement, people would have come after us as an organization. And as a representative of Jewish students, it would have come after Jewish students. And it would have given them that kind of excuse to do that. So I think, you know, you have to be careful. And, you know, you see this right now, a lot of Jewish organizations I see when they do rallies in support of Israel or vigils in support of the dead or fundraisers in support of the people that the families that have had loved ones kidnapped and held hostage, they don't disclose the, the location to the public. You sign up and they're like, okay, if you're accepted to this event, we'll let you know the day before where it's going to actually be because they're genuinely concerned about people coming and attacking Jews. So it's a weird level of consideration that you have to operate with when dealing with issues like this, unfortunately. During this period, you were putting so much energy and time into the liaisons with the Muslim Law Student Association and just feeling the pressure from, I guess, your own community and, and the general life of being a student that it was having quite a detrimental impact on your own mental health. And you said to me off air that when that statement came out, you actually cried because you didn't know if you had helped Jewish students on campus or had hindered them. So what was your mental health state here? Well, it was really difficult. Um, yeah, I think my mental health state was really being conflicted. You know, I think 
the reason that I did what I did was because I felt very strongly that by doing it, I was helping Jewish students because I was a creating a new relationship with other organizations so that we could, you know, in the future build upon that. But also B, I was, you know, creating a better environment in which we weren't in the crosshairs and we could be comfortable to do our own thing without it, you know, seeming as if we're in direct conflict with uh, Muslim students or with other students who have views on the issue. But it's always kind of difficult to compromise. It's always very difficult to be quiet when things are going on. And so, and there was a lot of people who just, you know, very fundamentally disagreed with my approach. So I think you always question yourself on whether you're doing the right thing, especially when you're doing things because, you know, maybe it's not your first impulse, but you thought, okay, this maybe is the the way forward. It was a difficult moment. I think in reflection that I'm very happy with what was achieved and like, and how that changed the campus environment, at least at that time and, and gave us the room to make our own statement on the issue. But, you know, in the in the moment, it wasn't so clear to me. You spoke earlier about anti-Semitism in academia, which we're going to discuss in a bit, as since October 7th, there's been a few examples of just pretty naked anti-Semitism in academia. But I want to start with your alma mater first, because there was one professor at your law school you told me off air about who didn't even try to hide it very well. Yeah, well, we have one professor at our law school and, you know, he was on, um, I guess, a podcast. And he was talking about Israel and anti-Semitism and so on. And he he made a couple inflammatory statements, one of which was that he talked about Jewish supremacy, which is this concept that basically the Jews can be supremacists, uh, at least in the context of Israel, which is a pretty inflammatory statement because, of course, as we know, a huge percentage of hate crimes are committed against Jews uh, here in the West, and that white supremacy has as its target Jews. I mean, if you look at the great replacement theory, which is very prevalent now in the American politics, is the idea that Jews in a conspiracy are replacing white people with people of color. You have Charlottesville, where people are chanting the Jews will not replace us. So it's really problematic to take a term that is very well associated with the prejudice against Jews and then use that as labeling Jews as such. The other thing that he said was that the Holocaust could be exaggerated. And it's a crazy statement to say, because it assumes that you could make the Holocaust worse. Like I could embellish it in some way that increases how bad it was from where it, where it already stands. And it's an unnecessary statement. I mean, what does it add? Unless your point is that it is possibly that you actually believe that's a possibility, or you have a belief that it is, what's the point of making such a bold statement? Anyways, he made these statements. He, he faced backlash from the Jewish community. He didn't face any disciplinary actions, but he was very upset publicly that his freedom of speech was being stifled on this. But what the conflict between me and this professor was, is when we published a, about a year later, we published a Holocaust event for the law school. It was a, it was a very successful event. We had 250 students from all different law schools. We had every dean of every law school. We had the mayor of the city, and we had the special envoy for Holocaust remembrance and the fight against anti-Semitism, Erwin Coulter. But before the event went off, we had a publication in the student newspaper 
letting people know about the Holocaust event and also talking about the Holocaust. The newspaper published an article from this professor in which he defended himself against right-wing Jews and defended his use of saying the Holocaust could be exaggerated because anything can be exaggerated. And is, of course, his use of the words, uh, the phrase Jewish supremacy. So, I mean, I think it was really bizarre for a student newspaper to publish an article in general that makes the case that Holocaust can be exaggerated. I think it's also bizarre to do that on Holocaust Remembrance Week. I think it's really bizarre to do that side by side as a commandium piece. When we pointed this out to the administration, their response was they didn't really understand what the problem was. They then told us to reach out to the student newspaper. The student newspaper told us there was nothing they could have done differently. They're sorry, we're upset about it, but they didn't do anything wrong. And they're not going to make any changes, of course. And that if we wanted to deal with them in the future, they have a Jewish student on staff that we can talk to. So the listeners know this isn't a one-off. There are some other examples that I'm going to quote of other academics who openly praised the events of October 7th and the biggest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. So one example, Osman Umarji, a lecturer at the School of Education at the University of California, Irvine, said during a lecture on November the 10th, quote, the Zionists have been exposed for the criminals and bloodthirsty animals that they are. This is a gift from Allah to the world. Second example, which some listeners may be more aware of, is a man called Russell Rickford, who is Associate Professor of History at Cornell University. And he delivered a pretty inflammatory speech at an off-campus protest on October the 15th, so literally a week after the massacre, saying, quote, What has Hamas done? Hamas has shifted the balance of power. Hamas has punctured the illusion of invincibility. That's what they've done. You don't have to be a Hamas supporter to recognise that. Hamas has changed the terms of the debate. Israeli officials are right. Nothing will be the same again. Nothing will be the same again. Hamas has challenged the monopoly of violence. And end quote. He also said in the same speech, quote, it was exhilarating. It was exhilarating. It was energizing. And if they weren't exhilarated by this challenge to the monopoly of violence, the shifting of the violence of power, then they would not be human. I was exhilarated. There's another example, but we might be here all day. Were you surprised by this or not? So some of it always surprises you. I think going back to the president of Harvard not wanting to say that calling for the genocide of Jews is something that breaches the code of conduct at the university. That surprised me. But it surprises me often, not so much the inflammatory statements. So when people say things like, when you get these people who say things like praising Hamas, right? That doesn't always surprise me. What really surprises me more is the general public's response to those things. Because we've had anti-Semitism since there's been Jews, but like, let's say 2000 years at least. And so anti-Semitism exists. And even in the most perfect world, there'll be anti-Semites, right? There'll still be Kanye West one day, right? Like people like that, they just exist. And the question for me isn't, okay, are there anti-Semites out there? It's, what is the general response to that anti-Semitism? So I'll give you an example of that. So, okay, I mean, you have college campuses and you have some anti-Semitism and it's the president's jobs to respond to that, right? And so on some level, the president being representative of the university is kind of the response to what anti-Semitism is, at least the people who are able to actually do something about it. But the response that's even more interesting 
is the general public. You know, I watched an SNL skit. This is going to sound silly, but I really like for you to think about why it's so important. I watched an SNL skit and the SNL skit was about the hearings. Now, the joke in the skit was the person asking the questions, right? That was the focus of the joke, as in the joke was, oh, the person asking the question is this crazy person. And only, you know, because the university presidents were so bad at responding, did they look good because they're so crazy. And the other joke was that somehow the person asking the questions hates Muslims. They don't care about Islamophobia, just about anti-Semitism. And pushing that black v. white narrative, isn't it? Yeah. Well, just this idea that, yeah, I mean, there's a really horrible idea that, you know, Jews... We just care about ourselves or something, which is kind of crazy because I talk to a lot of people who are progressive Jews who now feel kind of ostracized from their own community mm. because of this particular issue. And it, it doesn't really matter if they are aligned on other issues because of this one issue, they've been ostracized and definitely not supported. I think going back to the SNL skit, what I'm illustrating is that was the takeaway of like, you know, kind of a mainstream thing i mean you know this isn't the first time from snl i mean we had when kanye was saying he's going to go defcon 3 on the jews dave Chappelle came out in the opening monologue to say you know a defense of kanye before he said i love hitler people were like oh defcon 3 on the jews oh he doesn't mean it like that (laughs) you know he means it like this you know, it's a metaphor for the socioeconomic conditions and for the fact that uh, Jews... That's done a lot of work there. That's done a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. And I think, you know, so what I've been interested in, in terms of, you know, following anti-Semitism is how are people responding to that anti-Semitism? And I think immediately following October 7th, there was for a very, very brief moment, some sympathy for Jews, where people were condemning things like, you know, the fact that like in my city, in City Hall, people immediately after October 7th, on October 8th, were in City Hall celebrating the attacks, right? And you couldn't Jesus. interpret it as anything other than that, because at that point, Israel hadn't done anything in response. So that was sort of condemned, but we're way past October 7th now. And, you know, generally speaking, there isn't a whole lot of sympathy or care when, you know, we, we see these sort of increases in anti-Semitism against Jews. And when Jews point it out, we often see kind of mockery, which is what mm. SNL skit kind of encapsulates. Before we move on to your iTrek program, mate, which you've done really well, and it's been a really positive part of your life. Why do you think there is this blindness from the public to anti-Semitism here? And I'll put out a few examples of arguments. I'm not saying I agree or disagree with any of them, but just so you can maybe analyze them. So is it, for example, the false narrative of the oppressor versus oppressed model? Is it a capture of institutions by critical social justice ideology, which has this anti-Semitism at its root in some places? Is it a belief that because Jews are, quote, white adjacent, that they're not at the top of the victimhood hierarchy and therefore not worthy of sympathy or empathy? How would you describe it or analyze it? I mean, yeah, so I I think it's historic. Like it's been around forever. That's the first thing. So there's a lot to draw from. It's not a new phenomenon. It is prevalent on the left. It's prevalent on the right. And it's for different reasons. I think people on the right generally see Jews as, you know, these progressives who are, you know, looking to change society to replace white people or just, you know, based on other tropes, 
of Jews. I think people on the left generally see Jews as sort of like an embodiment of the ruling class or white adjacent. I think Israel has generally been turned into an issue that it isn't. So it's been labeled an apartheid state or a colonial state, or it's being turned into the United States in terms of how people are critical of American foreign policy. They've applied this kind of lens to the Israelis. And I think, you know, what happens is that people on the left generally are very critical of Israel. And it's sort of easy to become, you know, this is the worst place ever about a country as opposed to a people. But it just so happens that those people are half the Jewish people in the world. So if you really are critical of Israel, then, you know, in a lot of ways, you're very critical of Israelis. And so then you're critical pretty much of half the Jews. And then you go to the Jewish people, you know, and and it looks like they're all supportive of Israel, which they are in large numbers. And so now you just hate half the Jews who happen to live in Israel and then 80% of the Jews who don't live in Israel. And, you know, you're left in a situation where, you know, you hate 90% of Jews and you feel like it's not that I hate Jews for being Jews. I hate Jews for, you know, supporting Israel, being in this political camp that, you know, I detest. And it's sort of this mixing of, it's the mixing on the one hand of what is socially acceptable in society, which is to hate people for their political beliefs and actually hating a group of people for being being guilt by association yeah yeah and i think again you know where i see anti-semitism on the left that's kind of crazy is the indifference this is the thing right if you see anti-semitism on the right usually it's pretty strong so if you look at elon Musk's tweet he basically endorsed this person that said that the jews have been replacing white people with people of color and now they've realized that the people of color aren't going to back them up when it comes to Israel or anti-Semitism. And they're coming to the white people and screaming anti-Semitism, let them deal with their own problem. In other words, the Jews have put this on themselves. And he said, right on or something like this. So that's what you see on the right. It's pretty obvious. When it's on the left, it's more like, you know, there was many women that were raped by Hamas during the October 7th massacre. There was a lot of groups over here that didn't want to condemn that or didn't want to acknowledge that or didn't believe the women. I mean, this was a supernova festival, wasn't it? This was at the supernova this was festival. a supernova yeah. festival in other places. Yeah. And that's bizarre. But then you realize it's this sort of, again, it's us versus them. Right. Yes. Yeah. And Jews and Israel are them and everyone else is us. And so me too, except question mark. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like if somebody's not on your side, then we're going to do what we have to say or do in order to discredit them or make them look bad. And any acknowledgement is a loss. That's why you see, for example, people tearing down posters of the hostages, right? So there's been posters that have been put up of Jewish hostages that have been held, you know, children and old people and young people and women. And these posters have gone up all over cities and campuses and people actually like tear them down, which to a Jewish person seems 
crazy. I mean, okay, you have your views on Israel, but what does that have to do with the fact that this person is being taken as a human hostage? Like, this is a horrible situation, you know? And Well, those it, people claim that it's propaganda, that it's actually well, not even course. true that they've been held hostage. That's what they would claim, yeah. But you can apply that label to all of it. And, and it's a question <laughs> of, like, humanity. I mean, like, if you have a poster that says... Israel's the best country ever can do no wrong. And you have another poster that says free Palestine now from the apartheid colonial state of Israel, right? And somebody tears down those posters, right? Then I think generally your response to that might be like, oh, okay, yeah, they didn't like that. They felt it was propaganda. However, if the poster was of children dying in Gaza, right? And I tore down that poster. I think the People response... People calling you pretty heartless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, okay, fine. You could call it propaganda. Okay, it has a certain narrative to it, but it's still a tragic thing. And to just tear it down sort of says, I don't care about that part of it. I only care about the part that is sad on my side. And that's what you see a lot with this conflict is because it's really weird... For example, for those people who are supportive of Hamas or say that it's justified in some way to also be critical of Israel, because how can you say, well, it's okay to rape and burn alive and murder and and take hostage all these human beings, but then it's wrong when Israel does this thing and look at all the human rights things that Israel are doing, but you're supporting a group that's also doing these things and much worse with much different purposes. So I think, you know, there's sort of an us versus them mentality that kind of blinds people to the reasons for that they support their own causes in the first place, for example. Before we come back to the October 7th massacre, which we'll cover in a little bit, mate, I want to talk about something positive, which was the iTrek program. You've done two trips and you've led them to Israel for your fellow students. Just tell me a little bit about the program, what its purpose is and how it benefited you and your fellow Jewish students, and also non-Jewish students who came along for the trip? Yeah, so it was a great experience. We had all these different law students. They didn't know each other. They're coming to Israel now, all with different reasons. Some of them were religiously Christian, and they wanted to see the holy sites. A lot of them were just wanting to go on an adventure and experience a new country and a culture. And many of them were really interested in learning about the conflict and understanding better what was this thing that everyone always was talking about, but no one really, for the most part, knows all that much about. So it was a really great trip because it kind of encompassed a lot of different experiences for people. And we traveled across Israel. We had food tours and markets. We met with people of different cultures. We met Arab Israelis. We met Palestinians. We met Ethiopian Israelis. We met Bedouins and Druze and religious Jewish people. We explored the northern parts of Israel. We explored the ancient city of Jerusalem and the modern city of Tel Aviv. And, you know, it was just a really enriching experience. People came out of that experience in both trips I did, really happy for it, saying it was the best trip that they had ever been on because it was just sort of jam-packed with different kinds of experiences for them. And it really gave people a, a wide array of information when it came to the conflict part of it. Of course, it wasn't really that which was the focus, but it certainly allowed them to speak with Palestinians, go to Palestine, go to West Bank, 
go to Bethlehem, hear multiple perspectives on the issues and come out with their own conclusions. And I've had people that come out of those trips with a huge variety of opinions on the conflict. When you were trying to get people to enlist and come on the trip, you got quite a lot of backlash when you were just advertising it in various student groups. Just tell me about that. And was that surprising or not? I mean, it wasn't completely shocking because right? <laughs> I had already dealt with things on campus. I think it was more than I thought it would be. The posts I had were not of any political nature. They literally were just, hey, you come to Israel. Here's a variety of different experiences that you can experience when you're here. I, at some point, this is literally the itinerary. This is where we're going. This is what we're doing. Here's who we're meeting. And I think it was about three posts or so the first time I did the trip. And yeah, it was a pretty long amount of comments, a lot of hate against the trip and people going. I think I did it twice the trip. And the first time I did it, they condemned it in a student newsletter. I was the president of the Jewish Law Association the first time while also doing this trip. And many people wanted to stop the letter condemning my trip in the student newsletter. And I very much disagreed with that. I didn't have any issue with people being against the trip. I think the thing that was kind of crazy to me was when people kind of really wanted to stop anyone from being able to go, when people very much demonized the people, you know, me and the other person organizing the trip as if we had some hidden agenda or were some of the worst people or something like this. I know the second time I did the trip, there was like a petition of like 200 students writing against me doing the trip, an entire student organization. Oh, who's got time for that, man? Jesus. <laughs> People have got too much time on their hands to be doing that. Christ. Yeah. The worst part was the, the one that really crossed the line was somebody put up a poster saying a petition to remove all the Zionists from Osgood. I mean, what do you even respond to that? Like, what? Do you just shrug your shoulders? Do you start to worry for your safety a little bit? Well, the school, I think, actually took that one seriously. That was the, right. because it was literally calling to remove students. So they did an investigation, but ultimately the school didn't end up taking any action on that. They just sort of waited out the clock of the school year and then kind of forgot about it. Classic PR move, that is, yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, the fact that it got so much backlash, I think when the backlash in terms of the comments were very pointed you know there was stuff in the comments that said stuff about norman finkelstein and the holocaust complex and things like this for people who aren't familiar he's a famous academic who it makes the case that the holocaust is an industry and that jews use it to garner sympathy for themselves and that you know some other things about the exaggerations of the holocaust and He's not very well liked. He's sort of popular in some Palestinian circles, mm. although he actually has kind of attacked the Palestinian cause in certain ways. So he's kind of hated by everybody. You'll hear him pop up from time to time because he is Jewish, because he does come from Holocaust survivors. He's very famous as a tokenized Jew, which is pretty common. You'll always hear about this Jewish group or this Jewish person who's not really representative of the collective as sort of touted out as justifying whatever a person is trying to say. But yeah, so they would bring up Norman Finkelstein and there was also something really bizarre that happened on University of Toronto that they brought up. So at the University of Toronto, they did a Holocaust event 
and people at the university protested the Holocaust event because Holy shit. Yeah. They protested it because they felt one of the speakers who doesn't really speak about Israel was not anti-Israel enough or something of this kind. And then there was a bunch of professors who basically lent their support in a letter to the protests of the Holocaust event. And I mean, like, I don't even, you know, it's hard to unpack that one, but, yeah. but it's also just odd that people were bringing up these sort of things to an Israel trip, right? That's where you get this kind of weird crossover into anti-Semitism. And so I think, you know, when things were like that, especially the second time the trip went off, it's pretty crazy. I think when it's just general criticism, fine. Although what's interesting about the Israel issue is this is really the only thing that people care about enough to do that kind of response, right? Enough to get 200 people to go out of their days to write a petition, enough to like create an entire organization just against this one particular trip. I mean, if I did a trip to China, no one would... Or Iran. I mean, you might not come back from Iran, to be fair to yourself, mate, but yeah. It's really the only country that would garner this kind of negative response. You just don't see it with anything else. And so, you know, it was very difficult to promote these trips on campus. And it wasn't even like you had a lot of people going on these trips. Like, these were, you know, trips of like 20, 30 people. It wasn't like a huge part of the student body, but... You know, a lot of the time people who didn't go on on the trips wouldn't go on the trip because, you know, their friends would be upset at them. And and it was really bizarre, too, because if you're going to Israel and you're hearing different perspectives and you're meeting people, that's not brainwashing. And that's how people treated it. Like it was if people would go and then they would be brainwashed. I think what it does actually do, and I think the only thing it can really achieve, to be honest, in the long term, is when you go to Israel it humanizes people. It's really hard to hate people when you speak with them, when you build friendships with them, because you realize, oh, these are just people. I mean, it's the same thing when we would go and meet Palestinians, right? These are just people. Like, these are people, they have different perspectives, but 90% of their lives are just about the fact that they're living their lives, you know, like not about the conflict. And, you know, I find this all the time, you know, I have a lot of Muslim friends and I might be their only Jewish friend, and I give them perspectives that they haven't heard before. I don't think I ever convince them of anything that I believe as opposed to what they believe. But what I think I do in conversations with them is tell them something they think means X and Tasa means Y. Like somebody said to me, they always saw Zionism as like this really evil thing that had evil intentions and evil background. And I said, well, to Jewish people, when they hear the word Zionism, they just hear support of Israel, or they just hear that Israel should exist. I mean, it's not like this crazy word to them with this deeper hidden meaning. It, it really just seems like an ordinary word to Jewish people. Like, of course, yes, Jewish people should have a country, and that's what Zionism believes, Jewish people having a state of Israel, or, you know, just a different variety of things. But I think when you don't know people who are from the other side, it's really easy to demonize people. That is something that really is a problem when it comes to this issue, is that people really demonize one side as evil and one side as good. And the truth is, is like, of course, when things for me, from my perspective, enter into Holocaust denial or anti-Semitism, yeah, okay, you've crossed the line. But generally speaking, like, 
it's really eye-opening that a lot of people who hold really weird views on this issue, it's sort of kind of siloed to that because it's such an echo chamber issue. We've come to the most difficult part of the pod now, mate, which is the events of October 7th, 2023, when Hamas terrorists invaded Israel, crossed the border from Gaza into Israel and murdered around 1,200 people, which is the most accurate official number at time of recording. Now, initially, for accuracy for the listeners, the initial figure of 1,400 was revised down as Mark Regev, Netanyahu's advisor, stated in an interview, I believe, with Medhi Hassan, that unidentified corpses which were previously included in the tally likely belonged to dead Hamas militants. So following on from that, Hamas also kidnapped an estimated 240 people, including elderly and young children. And during a ceasefire at the end of November, which lasted six days, 105 hostages were released. However, 135 hostages are still unaccounted for at time of recording and tragically 19 are dead. So for you, Eric, just tell me and the listeners the events of that day. You don't have to give me the entire context. just a little bit of the historical context of the previous couple of years in Israeli politics and Gaza and the reality of what happened. So prior to the conflict that currently occurred, Israeli politics have, have been in a bit of turmoil because... Netanyahu's government is one of the more far-right governments that Israel's ever had. And a lot of the actions they were taking were sort of aimed at eroding the democratic institutions of the country. So this, in a big way, was really, you know, a distraction for Israeli society. There was protests every week in Tel Aviv in the hundreds of thousands, which is gigantic protests for the population size of Israel, which is only... It was around the Supreme Court, wasn't it? Because Netanyahu wanted to change the organization or, from my understanding, the makeup of it or give himself more powers. Is that correct? He wanted to basically be able to override Supreme Court decisions as well as some of the more constitutional kind of laws. Yes. Yeah. Now, it's, it's questionable whether there is a direct link between that and October 7th, but there's you know, some reason to believe that it made Israel less prepared in some ways because it had to deal internally with this issue. The other thing that has been going on in the Middle East following the Abraham Accords that came under Trump was this normalization of relations between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Saudi Arabia specifically is one major one. Yeah. Right. Yes. And so the Abraham Accords they made agreements with other Arab countries, smaller countries, but they recently been working to create a normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. This is very significant. Most Arab countries have not recognized Israel as a country. Um, used to be at war with them. <laughs> Egypt, for one. <laughs> yeah, it used to fight wars with Egypt and Syria. It's fought in Lebanon, and it's you know many other countries have brought fighters into those various wars. So normalizing relationships with Arab countries is very significant to Israel, but Saudi Arabia is probably the most significant because right now you have a cold war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, where they're both fighting through terrorist organizations and economic means and to have control geopolitically in the Middle East. And if Israel and Saudi Arabia became allies then that would really shift the balance of power between Saudi Arabia, Israel, the United States, the bulk of the Arab world against Iran. It would isolate Iran further, and it would make Iran much less able to exert power in the Middle East. So while this was going on, there was the planning of the October 7th attack. And the October 7th attack 
was carried out by Hamas, but it was financially supported by Iran. There was also training that was supported by Iran, the extent of which we don't fully know at this time. But Hamas is a terrorist organization that is heavily supported by Iran. So it takes its marching orders in some ways from the Iranians. And so there's a very strong possibility that one of the reasons this attack happened at the time that it happened was in the hopes that by doing so, they could do enough damage to Israel that Israel would respond essentially in the ways that it has. And this would turn the Arab world against Israel and make it impossible for the Saudis to come to an agreement with Israel. Now, whether that's going to play out is yet to be seen, but it definitely has had a very negative effect on Israel's relations with its Arab neighbors. And of course, the other reason why October 7th happened was because the Hamas has been breaking ceasefires ever since they came to power, and they continuously do the same thing, which is they go into Israel, or they shoot rockets at Israel typically, this time they actually went into Israel, and they kill civilians with the hope that Israel will then bomb Hamas targets in Gaza, which will then kill civilians, which will then allow them a propaganda victory in the world by saying, look at how horrible Israelis are killing us. And so this is sort of the cycle. Now, what's significant about October 7th is they killed more Jews than have been killed in one day since the Holocaust. This wasn't 18 people killed in rocket attacks. This was 1,200 people killed in a massacre of people literally going house to house and shooting people as they slept, burning their homes, raping them, and then kidnapping them back to Gaza. At the very start of the massacre, I think a part of me, because of the barbarity and the barbaric nature of it, almost didn't want to believe it was true. And then I began to see images posted, blurred, of course, from media source I trust called Popular Front, run by my good friend Jake Cameron, where Hamas soldiers were literally taking pictures in front of the innocent Jews they would just butchered in those kibbutzes. Do you think this has woken up a few people or doubled down many instead on their views on either side? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to break that down into pieces. The first one is you're talking about the photos. There was a phone call where somebody called home to their dad and mom and was like, I killed 10 Jews, you know, and he was very, yeah, this was so just quickly, this was quoted on Sam Harris's podcast and Barry Weiss's podcast. If people want to go and listen to kind of a more in-depth analysis of that. So yeah, no, I mean, they were excited. I mean, from their horrible perspective, you know, they had been very successful in what they were doing. So yeah, there was sort of a glee to what they were doing. I think people, to your point about some people, I think on the fringes, but I'm not sure, you know, I'm sure if I went on university campuses, those fringes would become bigger. But it feels like the fringes to me, although maybe it's less, who support Hamas, like have just gone, okay, this was horrible, but it's justified. You know, the IRA in Ireland killed innocent people, and that was okay. So this is okay. And that perspective to me basically says, you don't care about human rights. You can talk about Palestinian statehood as a Hamas supporter. You can talk about it as like, you know, we deserve all the land, right? Because of X, Y, and Z. But you can't talk about, oh, well, look how horrible the bombings are because you don't really believe in human rights. 
you believe that it's okay to murder people in their sleep and kidnap them and rape them. So that's a crazy perspective. I think that's a fringe overall. The other perspective is the minimization of it. This is like also something that gets criticized, but I think it's extremely common. And I don't always think that people realize that it has been minimized to them because you'll talk to people who are on the other side of the issue about some of these issues. And I'm not talking about the people who are like the people really heavily involved in the issue, who read about it all the time or, you know, are part of a community that's affected. You mean the normies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about, yeah, the average person who supports pro-Palestine, they don't know about the October 7th massacre and what really happened because they got activated two weeks later when the bombing of Gaza started up. That's when they started seeing social media posts because the people who were able to generate, you know, millions of views on Instagram, those people, they came into full force when Israel was doing something, right? They didn't care when Israel was being attacked. And so I think the misinformation, I think, first of all, I think it's purposeful. I think the people who spread these things, they know, but I think the average person doesn't know. There is... Some people who have public facing roles like politicians who will often acknowledge how horrible the atrocities are, but then in the same breath say that it's, it pales in comparison to what Israel's doing, right? Or that when you weigh the two things, Israel's worse. We're politicizing empathy here in that comment basically aren't we that is politicized empathy yeah and i think you know one of the things that has to be said about it in terms of comparing israel and hamas is the intention so when that person calls and says hey i just killed 10 jews right he's doing that because he's genuinely happy about killing people i have never met an israeli who comes anywhere near that. And I talk to people in Israel from all different levels of the political spectrum. I don't even hear hate against Muslim people. I don't hear really any hate against the actual people in Gaza. What they have hate for is Hamas. And what the bombing of Gaza is about is killing Hamas. It's not about killing Palestinians. And this is a very important difference between the massacre that occurred and the bombing. When people say things about retaliation, it assumes that the reason Israel is killing people is because it's an eye for an eye, which is why the ceasefire calls make sense to some of these people, because what they're thinking is, well, Israel's killed enough people, now they can stop killing people, as opposed to Israel is doing what they're doing with the purpose of ridding Gaza of Hamas. And Israel's not going to have a ceasefire unless they get their hostages back, unless there's some quid pro quo. They really think that Israel's purpose in this is as horrible as the purposes of Hamas. And I think that that is sort of a symptom of not understanding the other side and just being in your silo because you have to be in a silo to really believe mm. that that the purposes of the Israelis are bloodthirst, essentially. I've got a couple of devil's advocate questions in a second based off that, mate. But just briefly as well, before we move on to Supernova again, what I found 
and even someone this is I mean, I've been a politics graduate I've tried as much as I can to get out of silos and challenge my own previously established beliefs and read across both sides of the political spectrum on any issue what I've found really really hard in the last two months is deciphering truth from lie or or fact from fiction propaganda from reality because every time there seems to be some sort of incident both sides in the media will claim the other one is responsible for it or deflect blame etc so one famous example is the Al-Aqsa hospital bombing which both sides blame the other for causing. There was also claims from October 7th that babies were beheaded or burned on that day. I initially thought that was correct, and I was looking into it from a few journalistic sources, and then I started to doubt myself and thought maybe that was false. How have you deciphered this, and how do the public really find out what is the truth here? Because it's it's very, very hard at the moment, isn't it? So on October 7th, the Israelis were completely caught off guard, and... They, in a matter of days, they had managed to kill 1,200 people and taken hundreds of hostages back to Gaza. Israel was in complete, utter shock, right, as any country would be. I mean, if you compare the 9-11 attacks to this, this was about 50 times more death per capita. So, I mean, there wasn't anybody I knew in Israel when after this had happened that didn't know somebody that had died or had been taken as a hostage or had been directly affected in some way. I think in that environment, you have a lot of people talking at the same time and misinformation gets created. And I think this also goes back to issues with the government. You know, the government that is currently in place in Israel is more of a far right government They've lost a lot of support after this attack. It looks very likely that a centrist government will come into power after the next elections. But at the moment, they continue to be in power. And, you know, this government has had people within it that have said inflammatory things because this is a coalition government and they have people really on the absolute extremes of the society. And I think that's where you've run into issues where People are, are making claims that just aren't true. But I think it's also confusion because you're trying to gather the dead and figure out what's going on. And I don't think Israel really intends to create misinformation. I think Israel knows better than that because I think it knows what credibility is worth. So you can find generally things that you're like, oh, that wasn't accurate, it turns out. But when it comes to Hamas, I mean... They are just the most hardest to believe source imaginable. So regarding the hospital bombing then, what are your thoughts on that? So in that incident, this was sort of the turning point against Israel. I think people had been supportive of Israel because of the horrible thing that had happened. And now, you know, they wanted to play the other side and be like, oh, you know, balance it out a bit. And so this was a perfect opportunity to do that. And... What Hamas claimed was that Israel had intentionally bombed a hospital and killed 500 people. What it actually turned out to be was that this jihadist group, which wasn't directly related to Hamas, they're kind of a little bit of rivals, but they also operate in Gaza, shot off some rockets. The rockets misfired and ended up hitting the parking lot of the hospital. So not only had the attack actually come from within Gaza on its own people, it also didn't kill anywhere near the numbers in which they claimed that it killed. And so 
they very well knew this information on all levels immediately. There was no miscommunications within, right? This was just, you know, the hospital got hit. Okay, this is a great time to blame Israel. And a lot of politicians in a lot of countries condemned Israel for this attack. News outlets all ran stories about how horrible this was. And it, it took about three days before people started going, oh, actually, we got this wrong. And a lot of politicians never retracted their statements. Yeah, I found that interesting. Mm. And and people didn't really generally believe Israel when it came out with like hard evidence of like the phone call of the people who misfired the rockets, for example, video of the rockets misfiring, or just the fact that the hospital was perfectly fine and, and it was the parking lot that had been damaged. The fact that our major news has given Hamas the same level of credibility as the state of Israel is sort of crazy, especially considering that that is the most prime example of not only just blatantly lying about where the attack came from, but also inflating the numbers. So is there misinformation coming from Israel? Yeah. Is there misinformation coming from Gaza? Yes. Yeah, a lot. And you really shouldn't be believing a terrorist organization in any credible way, especially after that, which was just this sort of really publicly blatant lie. But it also illustrates something else about the lies. And that's the fact that, you know, people, when Israel says something that turns out not to be correct, will very much blatantly discredit the state and come up with all these other conspiracy theories and conclusions where, you know, those same people, when it comes to Hamas and their lies during the conflict, will kind of ignore that and sweep it under the rug because they're much more excited to hear about Israel doing something that was incorrect than they're they activated. Yeah. yeah, they hear with one ear and they don't hear the things that aren't really relevant to the narrative that they want to push. After the events of October 7th, and the bombardment of Gaza by the Israeli government that began with airstrikes, and it's now been followed by a subsequent ground invasion, we saw a huge rise in anti-Semitism across the West. So you've already given some examples in your home city, mate. But there were also reports of people in my city of London celebrating October 7th in Sydney, in Australia. Outside the Opera House, there was a video captured of people chanting, quote, gas the Jews, which was reported by the New York Post and CNN. In North London, a region with a traditionally strong Jewish community, three Jewish schools were told to close for the day on 13th October out of security fears. So for the listeners, that was the Menorah High School, Torah Vodas Primary School and the Atarez Base Yaakov. I hope I'm not butchering that accent in Barnet, which the BBC reported. When you hear these examples, I'm sure you're not surprised. I'm, I'm not sure you're not shocked, but maybe you are surprised. Do you think people realise just how physically unsafe as much as that term has been bastardized, I feel, in some academic circles, a lot of Jews in these communities felt in the West. No, I don't think they realize. I think if you're not within the Jewish community, you're kind of blind to it in some ways because we're a tight-knit community. And, you know, when things come at us, you know, it doesn't always filter out to the rest. And, you know, a lot of hate crimes that just kind of go under the radar in general. I think it's kind of shocking, though, that in Toronto, 55% of the hate crimes for this year have been against Jews. We're a population of less than 2% of the city, and we're accounting for over half of all the hate crimes. And you've seen really disgusting things go on, like Molotov cocktails being thrown at synagogues and bullets left out of Jewish day schools. 
But I think a lot of it also just goes unreported because it's just sort of the day-to-day kind of hate crimes that maybe just don't make the news because they don't reach that level. But I can say that a lot of Jews are in fear. They're worried about wearing Jewish symbols in public or people knowing about their talking about being a Jew in any sort of sense, even we're talking about high holidays in public settings. So there's definitely a certain level of fear that is perpetuated right now. A popular phrase that has been used in some pro-Palestine protest, mate, has been, quote, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Now, I didn't initially realize why this term, the river to the sea specifically, was problematic and indeed anti-Semitic. Can you just explain why I would say a large majority of Jews feel this way and the context behind it? So the reason Jews feel this way is because from the river to the sea is from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, which means the entirety of the state of Israel. It's not a slogan that is open to the idea of a two-state solution. It's a one-state solution. And the question that then one has to ask is, well, if there's one state, then where do the Jews go exactly? What does that look like? And that slogan doesn't answer that question. People who say that slogan don't necessarily have an answer to that question. I think there's also just the fact that, you know, while you can create your own interpretation of what it means here in the West, in Israel, that slogan has genocidal intent, right? Because the organizations like Hamas, their goal is to exterminate the Jews, right? So, you know... Well, their, their leader literally said on November 7th, the October 7th massacre was just a rehearsal quote. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it goes back to this thing about, for example, with the ceasefire, people call for a ceasefire without any hostage exchange, right? They don't expect Hamas to do anything for the ceasefire. They just want the ceasefire. That's some real bigotry of low expectations there. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's sort of, you know, this situation where, you know, people are chanting from the river to the sea. I think some of them don't know what it means. I think some of them... Even if they understand what it means, they don't know what that would actually practically look like. But, you know, I think for Jewish ears, it's like you're saying, like, you know, remove all the Jews. And that's, you know, mass expulsion or genocide. And where exactly 7 million Jews are going to go, uh, it's really hard to say. And to believe that the forces that really believe from the river to the sea, like Hamas, would somehow, you know, have like some like really nice program to remove the 7 million Jews as opposed to a massacre of them is a pretty generous interpretation of an organization that just recently murdered indiscriminately the old, young women, children. We are now embroiled in a war between the Israeli government and Hamas. And at time of recording, approximately 21,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli airstrikes and the subsequent ground invasion. And I've seen, I don't know why I've decided to see these, but I've seen too many videos of distraught husbands in Gaza next to destroyed buildings, you know, crying that their families have been killed in an airstrike and Regardless of who owns media outlet Al Jazeera, on October 25th, Wael Dadu, a Al Jazeera Arabic correspondent, lost his wife, son, daughter and grandson in an Israeli airstrike on the Nusrat refugee camp. So how do you react to stories like this and how do we end the conflict, basically? It's an age old question, I know. It's horrible. I mean, it's a, hor- it's a horrible thing. I mean, for people... To be killed is horrible, but to lose your children, 
to be, you know, disfigured. I mean, war is one of the most horrible things in, in human existence. I mean, it's impossible to not have a human reaction to that and just be like, this is horrendous. I think in terms of resolving the conflict, I think we're in a difficult place for that right now. I think a first step is you need to remove Hamas because as long as Hamas exists in Gaza, there will be this continuation of violence because they will do this again when they get the chance because they've done it before many, many, many times. And they've stated that they want to do it again and they want to do it even worse. And so to leave Hamas there would just be to allow for this continuation of violence to continue. That's step one. And then the step two is a much more or difficult step, and that's a two-state solution in which there is a successful, economically vibrant Palestine and Israel. And how do we get there? I don't know. That's a very difficult process. I think the Israelis have on a number of occasions offered a Palestinian state to the Palestinians, and it's been rejected. But I think that the possibility that political winds can change and there could be a moment where, you know, all the stars align and it just so happens the leader of the Palestinians at the moment and the leader of Israel and the geopolitical world events are all kind of coalesce and we come up with this deal where they can live in peace together. I think in this moment it feels like, you know, far away, but I'm always uh, continuously hopeful that there will be lasting peace between Palestinians and Israelis. I think that until that day when we have two states, this violence will unfortunately be with us. We both know, mate, that collective punishment is a war crime in, in any conflict. And given the scale of the death count in Gaza, a lot of people on the other side of this debate will claim that the conflict and the actions by the Israeli government on Palestinians is Israel's attempt at its own genocide on Palestinians, like Hamas's attempted genocide was in Israel on October the 7th. How would you respond to that? So, so the first thing is the death count, right? The death count, it sounds like Israel has killed 20,000 civilians. What the death count actually is, is about 8,000 Hamas fighters and 12,000 civilians. And the fact that I didn't even realize that, it didn't even occur to me, tells you something just about how people have kind of framed this as as how you said, you know, like a genocide or a retaliation, right? As opposed to mission to actually kill Hamas. And I think... The reason why this is very different than what Hamas has done is what the goals of the Israeli army are. The goals of the Israeli army are to find Hamas fighters, find weapon caches, and destroy them. In the process of doing that, they've killed civilian lives. But this is not the result of actually targeting civilians, but rather the fact that when you have a very densely populated group of people, 
that is I think the second on earth i think it is the most densely populated or the third or something like that yeah yeah exactly when you have that it's really hard to carry out these operations now the israelis though take a lot of care even so they're criticized for doing so so for example they'll call a building hours in advance to let them know they're going to bomb it no other army in the world does this and it's not strategically advantageous to the israelis it's, it's strategically disadvantageous but they do this because they want to kill at least the amount of civilians as possible you know when people are talking about they're evacuating everyone from north gaza and they were very critical of that. Well, they were doing that because they wanted to reduce the number of civilian casualties. Now, is Israel a perfect army that never does anything wrong? Of course not. And, you know, one of the things you could be, I think, actually be critical of, maybe, I think it would be hypocritical because I think every army does this, but you could be critical of this, is the fact that they are concerned about the lives of Israelis, right? So any army bombs, as opposed to putting troops on the ground, part of that reasoning is you want to minimize the amount of casualties of your troops, as opposed to putting them street to street combat, right? So that could be criticized, maybe, but there's no genocidal intent, because to have a genocidal intent, you would have to prove that the Israelis purpose are to kill civilians. And the fact that there's only been 20,000 casualties, and that is a horrible number, is very low for a population of 2 million people. It's very low in the sense that for a conflict like this, you know, that you haven't seen higher casualties. It's it, The Iraq and Afghanistan wars, the casualty... Like was more than 100K. 500,000. 500,000, yeah, yeah. Civilian casualties, just mm. civilian casualties. And the Gaza conflict has been about 12,000 casualties. And the numbers will go up, of course, I think, over the next few months as the conflict continues, unless there is a ceasefire that happens to be agreed upon. There's no positive way to talk about people dying. I mean, but, you know, I think... To believe that Israel is doing anything it's doing for any other purposes than it's stated is hard for me to understand. I've never spoken to anybody in Israel that has ever expressed any sort of hatred that drives them. There's no strong narrative of that. I think people talk about wanting Hamas gone. I think people talk about worrying about their sons and daughters dying. I was at a rooftop at this Airbnb I was staying. I was having a barbecue with a few of my Israeli friends. It was two Israeli friends of mine and this third cousin or something like this of mine. And we were chatting and we we're having a beer and cooking and eating and having a good time. Now today, all three of them are in the army and two of them are in Gaza. So I think, you know, when we're talking about the conflict, you know, we have to really appreciate the human toll it takes. You spoke about a two-state solution there, mate. And in a recent Sky News interview, the Israeli ambassador to the UK said categorically Israel or the current Israeli government was not in favour of one and said, quote, absolutely no. So where do we go from here when we now have Hamas who want to destroy Israel? That's a fact. But also a far-right Israeli government who wants to not just destroy Hamas, but seemingly 
never give Palestinians freedom or a state or however it looks, you know, what is the path here? Because some governments in the West are talking about sanctions on Israel. Are they going to isolate them? Do the Israelis need to protest and want a emergency election? How do we go from here? So again, I, I think you have kind of extremist elements of this government, right? It's one of the most far right governments ever. And it's a coalition government right, which you're familiar with in the UK, where different parties have kind of agreed on sharing power together. And so some of these parties are more extreme. And so there are extreme elements. And I think that's where you get statements like that, which deny a two state solution. But I think if you look at the deal that was on the table, when Israel was first formed, that the UN voted on originally to create a Palestinian Israeli state that was turned down by the Arab countries, that was probably the best possible deal. I mean, they had Jerusalem, they had more than the West Bank, they had Gaza, they had a lot of land, they had all of significant land at the time, and they turned it down. And since then, when Israel has made offers of peace and to create a Palestinian state, you know, it's been continuously turned down. And now, you know, that deal doesn't look as good as it once did. But the question isn't so much for me of whether the deal is good enough that the Palestinians will agree to it. The question for me is, will they agree to any deal? And nothing has shown that they would. Now, I would love for Israel to make a generous deal to the Palestinians and the Palestinians to take that deal and we can have an end to this issue. But I think it's wrong to assume that Israel is not willing to create peace with Palestinians when they've been the country that has wanted peace. You know, a great illustration of this is the intifadas. You hear about this sometimes now, people calling for the intifadas. The intifadas, the first one, basically was at a time when it was more easy to come from Palestinian territories into Israel. And the intifada was an uprising as they called it, where they basically would, you know, blow up buses, blow up cafes, stab people on the streets. And the purpose of it was to create this like huge amount of fear within Israeli society to force them to negotiate. So the Israelis actually did because they were so fearful of these attacks, they wanted a resolution to the conflict. However, in those negotiations with Arafat, leader of the PLO, the Palestinian movement, they weren't able to come to an agreement. Even so, the Israelis had moved very close to making a compromise deal that was in the Palestinian favor. Arafat turned the deal down. And after that, what Arafat did was he did a second intifada, thinking, well, the first time we did this, it gave us better negotiation. So like, we'll do it again, and hopefully that it'll be uh, the same result. But this time, the Israelis said, no, we're not going to be intimidated like this. And they went in a different direction. And that's where for the last 20 so years, you've had mostly right-wing governments in Israel. And you've had things that people talk about, like the wall on the West Bank. That wall comes from the Second Intifada because it was a security measure in order to keep people from easily crossing from West Bank into Israel and causing terror. Things like the Iron Dome come at this time. The security state, as we imagine it in Israel, really comes out of those attacks. And if you look at Gaza, the Israelis gave Gaza to the Palestinians. It used to be that it was occupied by the Israelis. Before that, it was occupied by the Egyptians. 
the Egyptians had Gaza and they lost the war to Israel. Israel took over the territory. It tried to give it back to Egypt. They said no. So they kept in Gaza and they gave it to the Palestinians as a move forward on a peace deal. And what happened was about a year later, they had democratic elections in Gaza and they elected Hamas. Hamas is a democratically elected government. It's a terrorist organization, but it's also a government. Now they're a dictatorship. Now they've stopped having elections after they won. They had about 50,000 Jews living in Gaza. Before they handed over Gaza, they forcibly removed all the Jews. The Israeli government did. And they also had a bunch of greenhouses in Gaza that were a big boom for the economy. And Hamas burned those greenhouses to the ground. Why? Because their only stated goal is to destroy the state of Israel. And it's sort of the cynical thing of they didn't want anything from the Israelis or maybe they wanted there to be more desperation so there'd be more fervor for their cause. It's not exactly clear. But to speak about Israel as having no interest in two-state solution or they never tried or they didn't make efforts, they have. They have made it with Gaza. The reason that Gaza is the way it is is because they let themselves govern at some point and this is the result of that. So I think that despite some comments from some elements of the Israeli society, generally people believe in a two-state solution. And I think, you know, when we get years away from this conflict, you know, we can realistically again probably talk about that happening. I think it will happen. I just think also, you know, there's a question in Israeli society on what a Palestinian state looks like. Because one of the interesting things about this issue is, you know, the people that are supportive of the Palestinian cause are supportive of a cause which doesn't believe in gay people's rights, doesn't believe in women's rights, doesn't believe in a lot of the values of the people who support it. I mean, they support their right to land, but they don't really grapple with the problem that once you have a Palestinian state, it's not really going to be that much better than any other state in the Middle East which represses its own people, which doesn't have democracy, which doesn't believe in human rights values. So when people are saying, well, okay, create a two-state solution. Well, okay, so now you have a second state, you have a Palestinian state. What does that look like? And is the only thing that, that has been achieved for Israel is people can't be critical of Israel for Palestinians not being occupied, right? Because now, okay, they're not occupied, they have their own country, but now they also have their own army. So after reeling from a massacre, it's sort of understandable also that people in Israel are kind of cynical about what a Palestinian state would look like and what would that actually mean for Israel. Because I think when we talk about two states, when I talk about two states, when most people do, I think we think it's the end of the conflict. We think, okay, now the problem that's causing the conflict has been solved. And that might not actually be the case in reality. The conflict might still rage because there might still be a feeling that the entirety of Israel should become Palestine as opposed to a two-state solution, and that that might just be a stepping stone to that. I don't believe that, but I do see and understand why some Israelis right now at this specific time might be skeptical of a two-state solution. And as a final question, I'm going to wrap my last two into one. What has been your proudest achievement on this professional journey, and what has this professional journey taught you about yourself? 
I think the most proudest part of all this has just been sticking up for principles that make sense to me and not getting sucked into whatever is going on and kind of losing track of things that matter. I think things like cutting through kind of the silos of good guys versus bad guys is important. I think there are people who are advocating on both sides of this issue who have really good, genuine intentions. I think there's also bad intentions, but I think that oftentimes when you're are, you know, involved heavily in, a, in these sort of things that you kind of can lose sight of things. And I think being able to keep grounded has been something that I'm very proud of. And I think, you know, I've put in the work and done the things that I feel were right. You know, I led trips to Israel or I led Jewish Law Association or, you know, I advocated for this issue on different occasions. And overall, I feel like I always did that in a way that I felt comfortable with, that I wasn't just saying talking points or not really engaging with, you know, the issues on a deeper level. And I think, again, the thing that probably is the most important is like, you know, talking with your friends from the other side of the aisle on the issue, talking with people who are actually affected by the issue, you know, my Israeli friends back home, you know, actually giving a human face to these things and not just treating it as political exercise or us versus them, but, you know, as a conflict, as an issue that's going on, that's actually directly affecting people's lives in an important way. We've talked all about your professional journey in a bumper conversation about the Israel and Palestine conflict, mate. Let's talk about your mental health journey now. So I ask all my special guests this question on this topic first. Take me back to early life, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Eric we meet here? So when I was really young, I had a hole in my throat. And this came from being born... It was a defect, and basically it meant that I couldn't pronounce words so well. So I ended up doing like speech therapy and things like this in order to get rid of my lisp. And because of that, I was held back a bit when I was young, and I also dealt with bullying and things like that. And I was able to overcome that at a certain point. But I think that was always a difficult thing in my childhood and also had ADHD, which is pretty common these days that you hear that. But, you know, it made it particularly difficult to focus in school. And so I think, you know, dealing with those sorts of issues really kind of, you know, were a stepping stone when I'm starting off. And by the time I got to the end of high school, I really wasn't much of a person who like put the time into studying and was focused. And so I ended up dropping out of university English at the uh, recommendation of my English high school teacher who told me I probably wasn't the best candidate for university. And I ended up going to college for three years. But after finishing college, I realized I couldn't really find a job with my college diploma. So I went back to school. I went to university this time. And I actually took a moment and, and realized like, how important my actions were going to be for the rest of my life. And I really wanted something more for myself. So I focused in on getting the best possible grades that I could get and really reading every single reading and studying it and engaging in class. And I ended up by my last semester of university having all A pluses in every class I was taking. And I was able to go to a really good law school. 
and get my law degree as well as my MBA from the Schulich School of Business. And I think sometimes it feels like we have this kind of narrative about our lives and that we just generally kind of coast along that narrative. But, you know, every now and then we have these sort of turning points and whether that's, you know, something significant happens in your life that's positive or negative, but there are opportunities to really kind of change the trajectory of our lives. And, you know, for me, sometimes I've taken those opportunities, sometimes I haven't, but that was probably one of the more significant moments in my life when I really decided I wanted more for myself. Mm. You described yourself to me off air, mate, as culturally Jewish, but not practicing. Can you just unpack that difference for me and the listeners and how it also relates to the roles you've held at Osgood and other places where you've been as part of the Jewish Law Student Association? Yeah, so Jews are a religion, Jews are a culture, and Jews are an ethnicity. The reason for this is that Jews don't believe in conversion. We don't try to convert people to the religion. Sometimes you do have some people that will convert. You know, maybe they'll marry somebody who's Jewish and they want to raise Jewish children, so they'll convert into the religion in order to do that. But generally speaking, most Jewish people are sort of born into that because their mother was Jewish, so therefore they're Jewish. And this is something that's been going on for thousands of years. And so the Jewish population is a distinct ethnic population. You know, you do a DNA test and Jews are going to have more in common with other Jews genetically than, say, the region they're from. So if a Jew's from France, the UK, Poland, they'll have more in common with other Jews in those countries than other French people. An, uh, an Ashkenazi so, Jew is like the term, I guess. An Ashkenazi yeah. Jew, yeah. So a French Jew might have more in common with a German Jew than a French Jew would have with another French person. The one people are very familiar with are Akhenazi Jews. Those are the ones that are distinct in, in culture. And, and of course, they suffer the Holocaust. They're European Jews. There is also Sephardic Jews, which hail from Morocco and Spain. They're sort of like Spanish Jews, although it's a little bit more complicated than that. A lot of them are Spanish Jews. When Spain kicked out all the Jews during the Inquisition, a lot of them ended up in South America. So they have Jews now in places like Mexico City. They're distinctly culturally different, although they share a lot of similarities. You have Ethiopian Jews, who are uh, often, when you think of uh, black Jewish people, a lot of them are Ethiopian Jews. Most of them now live in Israel, but they used to live in Ethiopia for thousands of years before sometime in the last century, around 1980s and beyond, there was a lot of famines and civil wars, and there was a huge movement to bring Ethiopian Jews to Israel, which was very successful. And now 3% of Israel's society is black, and a lot of that is Ethiopian Jewish people that live there. And then there's Mizrahi Jews, which are like Middle Eastern Jews. So like in Israel, it's a majority non-white country, which is a big misconception about Israel because 20% of Israel is Arab. The citizens of the country, 15% of those people, 15% of the 20% are Muslim Arabs, and then 5% are Christian and other denominations. White Jews actually make up a smaller percentage of Israel. Yeah, so there's different cultural groups within Judaism. I would fall into the Akhenazi Jewish group. Jewish culture is, of course, what most of your viewers are probably familiar with. Jewish religion informs the culture, of course, right? But it's sort of like, you know, 
if you have a, a Catholic Italian, right? A lot of the Catholicism will inform what it means to be Italian, but of course, being Italian is also distinct. And it's very similar with Jews. So I fall into the cultural camp, which just means that I might do things culturally that the Jewish people do. Friday night dinner. <laughs> Friday night dinner, possibly, or just like a certain kind of sense of humor or a certain kind of philosophical disposition or, or things of that nature, you know, and, but like, you know, any person who's not religious, I'm not religious. It doesn't take up a big part of my life. But because Judaism is both a religion and a culture, I still am very much Jewish person, despite the fact that the religious element of that isn't prevalent for me. And so, you know, I think when I'm in Jewish spaces, I sometimes can offer a, a distinct perspective because I'm coming at it from sort of a distinct camp. But, you know, it's pretty common for Jewish people to be not that religious these days, especially in the West. Even Israel, I mean, Israel, a misconception of the country might be that it's a religiously Jewish state, that it's a, a theocracy, but it's actually not. It's a secular state. It's a secular state. There are, of course, people within it that are religious, but they don't make up the majority of the country. Most people would be secular. So I think it's, it's much more common than people realize. I think a lot of people think that if you're not religiously Jewish, that you're not Jewish, but... In fact, most people consider themselves Jewish uh, and the West would say that they're not that religious. Coming back to iTrek, we've spoken about the logistics and the admin and the backlash. What did it personally give your mental health, Eric? I think, like I was saying, it became difficult when it became came within the realm of Holocaust denial or just like completely overblown out of proportion from what was going on. Only afterwards could I really step back and I could go, wow, you know, like 200 and something people went out of their days to create this petition just to condemn what I was doing. And maybe that might've been a realization moment, like, oh, am I doing something wrong? But it wasn't because reflecting on my convictions, all I was doing was organizing a trip for people, right, to go to Israel wasn't much more than that and everyone who went had a great experience so i felt like i did the right thing but it was difficult in the moment because it just was a lot of people against what i was doing and i wasn't getting a lot of support within my own community as well because a lot of people felt by doing this trip it was creating a lot of backlash and that wasn't worth it or something of that nature and then when one of the trips when they wanted to basically prevent people from publicly condemning the trip, I felt like that was a step too far because I believe that people can, within reason, condemn a trip I'm doing, I guess, in a student newsletter. And also, I think that when you prevent speech, sometimes you make things worse, right? If you have somebody condemning the trip and you're preventing them from doing that, then it looks like a conspiracy to prevent criticism. Mm -hmm. Those are a lot of things I just said. But that encapsulates what it meant to be in that moment because I'm one hand trying to understanding legitimate criticism while also keeping my eyes and ears open to when it crosses over into something else. I'm open to other people criticizing things that they disagree with, but also aware of the fact that that criticism can sometimes be completely out of proportion to what's actually happening. 
and trying to have a realistic perspective on things can be difficult and kind of disorienting. Before we reflect, something that you were keen to talk about was the power of finding your purpose, which is obviously so important for us as men as we are stereotypically purpose-driven creatures. You described this process to me as therapeutic. Just unpack that for me. So I think when you know what you're driving towards, it can always be a way to refresh yourself when you feel maybe like you haven't made enough progress yet or you're not sure what you're doing because, you know, at the end of the day, like I can get caught up in the weeds of whatever issue it is happening. But as long as I'm moving towards my goal, then I can feel good about that. Just building on that, mate, a saying that came up at the end of our chat off air was keep moving forward. So how does that shape the way you approach life and deal with its many challenges? Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes things can kind of feel hopeless or they can feel like you're not going anywhere. And then all of a sudden things can very quickly change. I've had many moments in my life where, you know, I've dealt with difficulties and things kind of feel like they're on a downward trajectory. And within the matter of a few days, I have a completely opposite outlook. And going through that pattern through my life, I've kind of come to the conclusion that you really just have to keep going forward and don't let everything fall apart around you. Keep the house in order, you know, whether that's making sure that your place is not a mess or making sure that you're still going to work or school or keeping things alive. It sometimes can feel like, well, what's the point? But then you really don't know what's ahead of you. And, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, when you have goals, you really are always going to be okay as long as you keep moving towards achieving those goals. And sometimes you have to reorient, of course, but I really believe that as hopeless as things seem in the moment, sometimes it's just that it's more temporary than you you ever could imagine that it was. And as a final question, mate, as we reflect on your mental health journey, similar question as before, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? And second of all, if you could go back and talk to the Eric who was feeling that big pressure to represent or protect his community at Osgood, the Eric who was wondering whether to sack it all in after getting abused for just simply organizing a trip to Israel, or maybe the Eric who was in that position in childhood, who had ADHD and was wondering whether university was the right path, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Just keep going. Just keep going. And it's always going to get better. You can do anything you really want to do. I never imagined for myself where I would get to in life. I didn't think when I was younger that I would go to university. Then I definitely didn't think I'd go to law school. And then when I was running Jewish organization, I didn't think I could put on huge events and get big name speakers. I didn't imagine for myself that I would be dealing with like complex issues. I didn't probably appreciate until I came back from my trips, what it meant to the people that were on those trips. I think a lot of times you just can't imagine how far you can go if you really are driven to move forward. And it doesn't really matter what has happened to you in your past you can always really achieve more than you even set out to achieve. And so I think even today, like sometimes, you know, when things go wrong in my life, I'm like, oh, wow, it's all ruined. I'll never fix this. And and then it gets fixed, right? And I think oftentimes 
with people who are struggling at different points in their life, it can feel like things will never get better when most of the time they do get better. And I think something that maybe contributes to that is, you know, when we feel like things aren't going to get better, we have habits that make things even worse and kind of dig that hole deeper. And that makes things so much more difficult to then cut out of. But if you just have that certain level of confidence that things will work out, then anything is possible. And most of the time, things will work out. Our final topic of conversation, Eric, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and quickfire chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? It's been better. I think it's been difficult the last few months with everything that has been going on. Of course, the immediate aftermath and keying into realization what had happened and then following that, dealing with the rise in anti-Semitism and experiencing that in my society and social media and from friends. And then the concern that, that has come with a feeling that really I don't think Jewish people, especially on this issue, have a lot of allies at the moment. So that kind of feeling of isolation. But of course, that's just one part of my life, right? It's a big part of my life. But sometimes it's good to just kind of get away from that. And so it's been winter here in Toronto. And so, you know, I've gone skating and I've done my best to, you know, experience the best the city has to offer and see movies and enjoy life where I can. And, you know, I'm currently doing my articling and I'm almost going to finish and become a lawyer. And so I think sometimes you get really absorbed into all the bad things that are going on in life or the world and lose sight of the good. And I've made a very conscious effort to just enjoy the good as much as I can. And that has really kind of helped me. And can you tell me what age you were when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Oh, I pretty early. You know, like I said, I think that being bullied at a young age and so on because of a list, you know, it, it brings with it, you know, depression and other issues like it was a difficult time in my life. And so I don't think it took very long for me to realize the importance of mental health. And, you know, I think probably later in my life, in my 20s, I, I kind of came to, you know, a fuller appreciation of taking care of one's mental health and what that looks like. But it was always sort of with me that that, that was an important thing that one has to, to look after and be cognizant of. Mm. And can you remember the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like on the one hand, a big moment or a weight had been lifted or on the other, something quite easy and normal to do? I don't really remember the first time I spoke with somebody about my mental health, but I think I was always sort of open about it. And I think that, yeah, it was never something I was ever felt ashamed of or I wanted to hide. I think honestly... As I got older, I came to realize that, you know, sometimes you have to take certain things into perspective, you know, and not let certain emotions get away with you. But, you know, I think that it's my experience always being kind of cognizant of it and always being very open about it is sort of a, a rare experience with that among men. You know, many friends that I know 
they kind of bottle that kind of thing up and they don't express it and it really comes out. And I think that's a much more common experience. I think the civic way that I grew up when I was very young kind of formed my openness towards that topic because it wasn't something that felt foreign. Mm -hmm. And building on that, what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, a smell, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I think that, you know, when I feel disorganized, for example, so I've always really being particular about, you know, keeping a clean apartment or writing down lists of things I need to get done and trying to make sure that those lists don't get out of control. And I'm always moving forward with the different things that I need to get done. And I think when I feel organized, it really helps. And when I feel disorganized, it, it can be a, definitely a drain. I've got two questions left, mate. The first one is, what do you love about yourself? You know, I love about myself. I keep going forward. I'm driven and that I don't let people tell me that I can't do X. And I, I have that belief in myself. And I think it's something that sometimes it can be difficult to continue to have, especially when people don't believe you to have that kind of self-confidence about what you can achieve. But it's something that's really been revolutionary to my life, figuring out that I can have that confidence in myself and utilizing it to achieve things that I didn't think were otherwise possible. And as a final question, mate, this is a broad one, so you can answer it any way you want. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all religions, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? I think, you know, when we're talking about men, it's really crucial to just have open spaces where people feel like they can open and up safe spaces another. as well. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of men just don't feel comfortable opening up emotionally, especially to other men on things that are really affecting them. There's lots of reasons for that have, have built into that. But, you know, I have found like when you've built up a relationship with somebody and they're going through a difficult time and you give them multiple opportunities to kind of you know, open up and express themselves, eventually they'll get around to it. I think, though, as a society, we really need to create more spaces so that, you know, there's opportunities to speak about things that are affecting us more openly, I kind of change those norms surrounding that. You know, it's interesting. A lot of my Israeli friends are very closed off about things. They're more kind of... Stoic? But maybe, stoic, yeah. 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 They're, stoic, they're very stoic. But, you know, the closer you get with them and the more times that you have conversations and you eventually kind of like... It's trust, isn't it? It's trust. Yeah. It's trust. Yeah. It's a trust thing. And I think, you know, building trust with people really makes a difference. I think it's also, you know, just making it clear that that's something that you can talk about. It's not something to be worried about. I think... You know, it really just takes one person and, and say a group of friends or in a personal relationship to like, you know, make it clear that it's okay to, to express yourself and, and to open up about things that are really bothering you when you're going through a difficult time and not just kind of gloss over it, which is often how we might normally deal with it. Eric, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for putting so much time aside to come on the Just Check It In podcast and talk to me, mate. Sure. Thanks. It's been wonderful. 
Well, that's all we've got time for on this bumper episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Eric for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him. I hope both these episodes with Eric and Hamza have given you an insight into the perspectives of both sides of this issue and provide a path, small though it may be, as to how we can build bridges, understand each other's pain and find a road to peace. I'll sign us off by saying, as always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned into this episode. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk, all one word. Or you can go to our link tree, that's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the other ways you can financially support Vent. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. <laughs>